Hi everyone, just a quick content warning that this episode involves discussion of sexual violence. Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Colleen, a lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and today I'm joined by my friend, colleague and previous guest on LawPod, Dr Ethna Dowds. For those who haven't listened to your previous episodes, Ethna, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi everyone. Yeah, so my research intersects the areas of international criminal law, feminist legal theory, sexual offences and children born of sexual violence in conflict. I am particularly interested in the relationship between international and domestic criminal law and the extent to which developments at the international criminal level might bear relevance to domestic law. And that's what I explore in my forthcoming monograph with Heart Publishing that should be released towards the end of this year. Today we are talking about your latest article, uh, which comes out in the Modern Law Review, or is out in the Modern Law Review? The yeah, early version is, is available online. Is available online. Yeah. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, and this article looks at uh, contextual definitions of rape and uh, consent, coercion and constructive force in that context. So maybe if you could start just by giving our listeners a brief overview of what the article is about. Yeah, so the the article itself um, really does three main things. So the first thing that I do within the article is engage with this concept of sexual autonomy, which is um, the key underpinning principle um, in, in international human rights law anyway in relation to sexual events. So I engage in a theoretical discussion of what sexual autonomy is and how it applies within the context of the crime of rape. I also then look at the two main dominant models that are used across uh, jurisdictions because there is no um, there is no universal definition of rape. There is multiple definitions, but the core models are consent-based definitions and coercion-based definitions. So try, I try to explore both of those models and try to understand a bit more the relationship between them. And lastly, what I do is I look at... Um, U.S. military law, so I extend our analysis beyond domestic comparators or international comparators to then look at how rape is defined within the military context and see if there's anything from within that context that we can use in um, domestic regimes. Brilliant. So maybe we can just talk through those different aspects of the article. Maybe, so you said the article discusses the ability of models of consent to protect against violations of sexual autonomy uh, for people that maybe aren't so familiar with that phrase, what is it that sexual autonomy means and how has that concept been formulated? Yeah, so at its most basic, sexual autonomy then is the idea that individuals are free to make autonomous decisions about their sex lives. And there can be multiple interpretations, I suppose, of that, but that's it at its most basic. And the European Court of Human Rights, for example, in a 2003 case um, had mentioned that that is the essence of rape, that individuals have their sexual autonomy violated. But that's a pretty abstract concept, if we think about it. And scholars have been working for a long time to try and think through what this concept might actually mean. So it can be then broken down. And generally, it's broken down into like two dimensions. So the first dimension would be positive sexual autonomy. 
So that is the idea that individuals can express themselves freely um, and can engage in the type of sex that they would like. And then on the other side of that is you have negative sexual autonomy. So that's the right of individuals to um, protect themselves against and safeguard themselves against any unwanted sexual activity. So you can see how they um, kind of work together. But rape law and other areas of sexual offences then have to try and navigate that so as not to encroach on individuals when they are expressing themselves freely freely and positively, um, but also to ensure that individuals um, don't have their negative sexual autonomy um, violated. So it can be a thin line to try and balance. And what has been happening then a little bit more in the scholarship and also in the application of rape law and sexual offence law is to probe a little bit deeper in terms of the relationship between the negative and positive aspects and we see a contextual or an evaluative dimension then coming to the fore. Because if you think about the concept of autonomy, for example, you know, it, it can be interpreted in many different ways and, you know, how free and autonomous are individuals. So the evaluative or the contextual dimension then means that choices are situated within the broader circumstances or the broader context. So we want to ensure that if you're going to protect individuals against negative interventions into their sexual autonomy so you don't want to just limit that to extreme violence or force for example contextualizing the situation then allows you to think a little bit deeper about more subtle aspects of coercion that might mean someone isn't acting as freely and you also then think about that in the sense of the positive aspect of sexual autonomy if an individual says yes or engages in sexual activity not always is that valid under the law, for example, because you can think about situations where someone has been coerced and they might have um, given token acceptance or token agreement. So if you contextualise that situation using the contextual dimension, then it allows for a more deeper understanding and a better protection of sexual autonomy. And in your article, you talk about these two models of defining rape in particular, and you have the consent-based model and the coercion-based model how do those different models engage with this kind of contextual analysis? And actually even what are those models and how do they relate to each other, first of all? Yeah, so basically the the discussion of the models in the article really stem from, again, looking at human rights law or to the international arena. So in the case I mentioned earlier, 2003 one from the European Court of Human Rights, they mentioned that you know consent is the core concept whenever we talk about rape and sexual offences. And that was off the back of a case where um, the, in Bulgaria where the crime of rape was defined primarily in relation to violence and the, the need for resistance to be shown. So this is where consent then came to the fore. And then in another case before the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, they talked a little bit further, and this was in the context of the Philippines. And they again said that the Philippines should have a definition of rape that um, is centred around this notion of consent and the idea that where someone does not consent, then, you know, it is a violation and you don't need the additional violence, you don't need acts of resistance. And they set out that if a jurisdiction is to um, put consent at the centre, it can do it in two ways. So one is the consent-based model, broadly. So the idea that where an individual um, does not unequivocally or voluntarily agree to the act, um, and where the perpetrator does not, for example, take steps to try and understand whether an individual does consent, then that could fall under the crime of rape. So that's the consent-based model. Then you have the coercion-based model, which 
the the guidance given in the case is a little bit vaguer, but it says that, you know, where the act has taken place under course of circumstances and that the jurisdiction should provide a range of circumstances under which that can take place. Now, in the article, I go then a little bit further and try to actually look at different comparators because there is, you know, as I said at the beginning, there's no universal definition, there's different variations. And in terms of consent-based models, I looked at England and Wales and I also looked at Canada. And within the England and Wales model, for example, you have um, the the idea that rape will take place where an individual does not consent to the act. An indivi- the, the perpetrator then does not reasonably believe that the complainant consents to the act. And in trying to determine whether there was reasonable belief in consent or not, the um, fact finders have to take account of the surrounding circumstances and any steps taken by the accused. So you can see how that reflects some of the, the human rights language. Um, Canada is a little bit different because it follows the same sort of format, but in the case law, it talked about this idea that, you know, somebody doesn't consent, doesn't not consent um, when they say no, only when they say no, that you also have to try and understand, well, if they weren't saying no, were they actually saying yes? Um, so it's a slightly different shading because you're looking for agreement rather than looking for um resistance and you know that sort of thing so that is the consent based models the coercion ones then are different because again they reflect um the other side of the model where you have simply a list of circumstances for example course of circumstances be it force intimidation physical violence um i looked at michigan for example they also had an age so where an individual is under 13 or where the perpetrator is carrying out another criminal act and they carry out a sexual offense for example um, and I also looked at Italy, and they include um, abuses of power or abuse of authority. So they're different in that sense, but where you see similarities come in is that even though the coercion-based models that I just spoke about, there's no explicit mention of consent in the in the statute, in the piece of legislation, but when you go deeper, you see through the case law in both Michigan and in Italy that the courts have said that consent is still there. So in Michigan, for example, consent is a defence. So the defendant can say, you know, well, actually, this isn't rape or this isn't sexual assault because the complainant consented. And in Italy, the Supreme Court has actually said that the the purpose of their legislation is to prohibit all non-consensual acts. The problem, though, with those pieces of legislation is that there's no definition of consent, whereas you have a definition in the England and Welsh model and also in the Canadian model. How did you pick your case studies? So it took me uh, a while to have a look at the different case studies. And I suppose I chose England and Wales um, because it was one that was familiar and it also followed quite closely the um, the model that was proposed in the human rights regime. So I chose for that reason. The Canadian model I chose because, again, it followed a similar structure, but it had the slight variation in the sense that it was moving towards the affirmative dimension that I spoke about in terms of looking for an actual yes. So I wanted to pick two models of consent that demonstrated some variation within, you know, a a common model, really. And then in terms of Michigan and Italy, I chose Michigan because it has really been called out um, for being a, a key one at the beginning whenever reform started to take place and whenever consent um, started to be criticised. So Michigan moved away from that sort of model and um, has been written about quite a bit. Jennifer Temkin wrote about that in one of her key texts on rape law. 
So I wanted to really follow up on that and look into it a little bit more. And I also then looked at Italy because it had the abuse of power aspect to it, which I thought was quite interesting. And you had mentioned that there's this um, increased ability to look beyond what's happened to kind of consider the broader context context in which things are happening. How do these different models engage with a more contextual analysis? Yeah, well, the the consent-based models, for example, um, you you almost have it built in because you've got this, the definition of consent that is given, for example, that talks about um, consent being free and voluntary. So if you're wanting to understand if something's free or voluntary, then you have to look at the broader circumstances within which the, the context takes place. And you also then have, um, in England and Wales, for example, it gives a list of presumptions that, um, you know, it'll be presumed that an individual did not consent, where, for example, there's violence used or where they are deceived um, as to the nature and purpose of the act and so on. So you have a structure built in, in a sense, um, through those type of definitions. In the Italy and Michigan cases, it's not as obvious um, you obviously are going to be looking at the different aspects of coercion and trying to understand them. And in the Michigan case, there's model jury directions that do give out some information in terms of what the meaning of consent might be. And it, again, uses that language of free and voluntary. And it also asks the fact finders to look a little bit more at the situation in terms of was the complainant able to leave the situation? Was there violence used? Um, and different things like that. So there's different ways in which um, people's evaluative frames can be um, triggered to look at these types of situations. And from your analysis, what to what extent did you think these different models are actually able to adequately protect sexual autonomy? Um, I think so. I, I looked at it in two ways. I first of all looked at it in the sense of in what way is the three dimensions of sexual autonomy reflected um, within the different definitions? And we've just discussed there in terms of how the contextual definition can be read into it. Um, in the consent-based models, I think that the, the positive dimension is more clearly reflected because you've got clear definitions in the statutes as to what consent is. And the um, Canadian model and other affirmative type dimensions recognise that a little bit more. Um, the coercion-based models focus more on this negative aspect, so the protection against violence, the protection against coercion and so on. In terms of the actual application, I think that the omission of a definition of consent or having consent at the centre in the coercion-based models makes them less able to adequately protect sexual autonomy because you have a situation where individuals are looking for the existence of this violence, looking for the existence of the coercion and so on, whereas in the other models you look for the absence of consent, which allows the offence to capture a broader range of situations. Um, although, again, there are there are flaws and there is work to be done with the consent-based models. And in particular, I think, with the consent-based ones where there is this focus on the reasonable belief of the perpetrator, I think it, it can be very difficult to adequately protect sexual autonomy because it focuses attention on what the perpetrator might have, or the defendant might have been might have perceived as consent. So you can have a situation where you might find that an individual, the, the complainant did not consent, but because the perpetrator believed in some way that a signal that was sent or something like that, 
I think that that makes it a little bit harder to protect. And we also have situations where there, you know, there's been studies done in terms of what um, individuals think amounts to consent or what amounts um, to rape and so on. And a recent uh, EU study found that, you know, a lot of individuals believe that even where there is no consent, it can be justified where there is no violence or where an individual doesn't clearly say no. So there's a lot of different factors at play that reduce the extent to which these um, models can work. So you said in the article that you have drawn from United States military law and that you use this to argue in favour of a doctrine of constructive force. Before we discuss what is meant by constructive force, why did you think that US military law in particular was relevant here? Okay, so this is kind of a, a long story to how I got here, but the um, this this whole article as well comes from my PhD research. Um, it's something that I talk about a little bit in the book where I developed these ideas, but um, I, I really elaborated on in, in the particular article. But I originally looked at US military law in relation to the doctrine of constructive force whenever I was looking at consent as it operates in the context of international criminal law. And in international criminal law, there is a lot of debate and talk about this idea of the coercive environment and the extent to which, you know, there can ever be genuine consent. And whenever definitions were being constructed for the international criminal context, an organisation called the Women's Caucus for Gender Justice, as they were then, now the Women's Initiative for Gender Justice, they had looked at different um, jurisdictions and they actually even looked at US military law. And this was in the context of trying to understand that, you know, force isn't always needed and resistance isn't always shown in situations where you have an extreme asymmetry of power. And throughout my reading for my PhD and for um, the book, I was always interested in this idea of a broad course of environment and these asymmetry of powers and the how the law should respond in these situations so as to acknowledge those, but also so as not to um, be over-paternalistic and mean that no one can exercise free choice. So the because the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice had flagged up the US military law and the way they used this doctrine of constructive force, because in the military, obviously, is a another situation where there is asymmetry of power, there's very formal structures, there's difference in rank, there's um, a superior, superior subordinate relationship um, and there are specific rules that have been developed to deal with um, sexual misconduct, rape, sexual offences within that context. So that's really why I looked at that and I think that it can be relevant in domestic context because even though we don't live under those formal structures of the hierarchy, these different hierarchies and asymmetry of power can develop and one particular aspect that I always thought about was relationships that are char- characterised by course of control, for example, in new legislations that come out to look at how individuals within these relationships um, can be controlled by their partner. And I thought that if we could, the, the current status of our rape law, I don't think necessarily takes all that into consideration or is structured in a way that makes it easy to navigate that. So I wondered whether a system that you know deals with that and it's built on the basis of asymmetry might have something to lend itself domestically and what did you find like what what could we take from it for domestic law so i looked in particular at this this doctrine of constructive force then and basically what 
it means is that where there are unique situations of dominance and control, um, there isn't necessarily uh, force isn't needed. So in in the US military law, for example, it the definition of rape used to be based on both the presence of force and the absence of consent. And you would need to prove both elements. You couldn't just prove one or the other. And um, it did basically mean that resistance would have to be shown. So the doctrine was originally developed um, to deal with situations where an individual might not be able to demonstrate resistance through some disability or they are incapacitated or intoxicated and so on. And then later developed to also be used where there was a difference in rank, for example. And what I thought was very interesting from the way this doctrine was actually utilised was that in the instructions given to the, the fact finder, the individuals looking at these cases, it was asking whether the perpetrator used or abused their military position or whatever position it was that they were in, whether they created an environment that meant the individual was unable to resist or they were unable to act um, freely. And what I thought was interesting and what could be used in the domestic context then is that we are switching the frames and turning it around so that, for example, we're not asking what did the complainant do to make the defendant believe that you know they might have been consented consenting. What we're now asking is what way, what actions did the perpetrator take to make the complainant believe that they couldn't act in a certain way? Or what abuse did the complainant suffer? Or why did the complainant perceive that they wouldn't be able to say no? So it just switches it slightly. And it's it's a kind of it's like a minor switch, but I think it would make a difference in terms of the application because it means that you are confronting head on those criticisms about consent that I talked about earlier in terms of focusing too much on what the complainant done and moving it back to think about, okay, well, what way was the perpetrator acting? And we can frame our analysis in that way, which might create a better narrative. So what kind of scenario do you think that would apply to, you know, it makes sense in its application in a military context, particularly in relation to a subordinate and a superior? How, how could we cross that over into the kind of situations a, a civilian might encounter in their lives? Yeah, well, I think that um, mainly the type of situations I was thinking about was like those course of control situations that I talked about. So in the military context, for example, there was one case where an individual had, um, he was a superior of a new candidate that came in and he was in charge of all of the training, was in charge of the privileges, for example. So it might be that, you know, at the weekends they don't get to come and see their family or like he had control over that sort of situation. And he had... Um, coerced one of the candidates into having sexual relations with him and it was due to the fact that he was withholding these certain privileges for example or that if she said no he was then um, making all of the candidates do this really rigorous training for example and one of the judges actually mentioned you know it was called recycling so they've already done this rigorous training and they'd have to do it again and the judge had mentioned that you know if you were aware of what that entailed, then it would you would understand the um, the fear that would you know bring to someone and how they would feel like they maybe didn't necessarily have a choice. So it was like punishing her and the other individuals for her having said no. So subsequently she didn't say no. And so what I'm thinking about then is situations where in a relationship, for example, characterized by a course of control, 
where a partner maybe has control of the finances, um, takes control of an individual's social life, the extent to which they can engage with their children. Um, where they have that level of control over somewhere, someone, I think it can be similar to this, the formal structures. So what I'm thinking about is those times where these are strategically developed by a perpetrator in those type of relationships. And we could then ask to what extent did that individual use and abuse um, the control that they had exerted over this individual and what way was that perceived by the complainant? Sure. And in terms of like what that would look like in practice, maybe say England and Wales wanted to better capture this idea of constructive force, what would what kind of reform would be needed or what would we need to do to change the way the law is currently set up? Yeah, well, I think um, one thing that I think would be useful to do, and I actually had put this forward in the response to the Gillen Review that had um, just been completed in, in Northern Ireland in relation to the serious sexual offences and how they are prosecuted, is to include a presumption, so a presumption against consent where you do have this coercion um, or abusive power. I think that while we already have presumptions that talk to the issue of force and so on, I think that some aspects of force and coercion are more subtle. So if we have an additional um, aspect of the definition that explicitly calls that out, that would be helpful. And I also think that there's something that can be done in the likes of jury instructions so, like I said, the focus is on, you know, did the defendant reasonably believe that there was consent or did they take steps and so on? Um, what the instructions could then do is utilise this language um, from the military in terms of, you know, did the perpetrator abuse this position? Did the perpetrator put the complainant in a situation where she felt there was no free choice? Um and obviously they would have to be worked on around the perpetrator's awareness of that. But I think if we could have some language in there, so it doesn't necessarily all need to be done through the legislation or the statute. Um, it can be those other sort of tools that can be used. And that would mean for a prosecutor, they would be able to bring evidence of other things that are much more contextualised than just, you know, an isolated incident or whatever. If you could show like control over money or control over child access is that the idea that they'd be able to bring these other forms of evidence yeah I think that would be really important because I think that when you're talking about an incident of rape or sexual assault um there can be a tendency to focus in on the the minute by minute of that actual encounter and also what you know was there a yes was there a no but as you say if you are to be able to contextualize it and think about it within the broader circumstances then it would be much more helpful because it would take away from this very reductive analysis Thank you so much, Ethna. Where could people go to learn more about your work if they're interested in this topic? Yeah, um, if they want to find out more, there'll be some links in the show notes to this episode. And also they can check out my page on Pure at QUB. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law Pod, a production by staff and students from the Queen's University Belfast School of Law. This show was produced by Richard Somerville and hosted by me, Rachel Colleen. Our guest today was Dr. Ethna Dowds. Visit her profile page on Queen's website to learn more about her research. You can follow us on Twitter at QUB Law Pod and listen to our episodes on iTunes through our website at lawpod.org and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.